today on episode number 125 of Teaching in Higher Ed. Dr. John Stewart talks open educational resources. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so that we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so happy to be welcoming to the show today, Dr. John Stewart. He coordinates the development and management of courses for the A&E University of Oklahoma History Institute, a joint initiative between the University of Oklahoma and the History Channel. John is interested in developing digital learning environments to promote digital literacy and opportunities for undergraduate research. John is the Assistant Director for Digital Learning in the Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of Oklahoma. Before joining the center, John lectured on History of Science at the University of Oklahoma and Missouri University of Science and Technology. He earned his PhD in the History of Science from the University of Oklahoma. John, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me. Before we started recording, I told you that I I tend to try not to look too foolish on (laughs) these episodes, and you said I won't look too foolish if I tell you that I was really never heard of anyone that had your particular discipline, your your research interest areas. Would you share a little bit with the audience about what it is that you study? Yeah, so I'm a historian of science, and I got a, a PhD in history of science from the University of Oklahoma, and here it's its own department separate from history. So in most places, you might have a historian of science or two within a history department. But here we have 12 historians of science in our own department. Uh, I study history of chemistry, particularly in the 18th century in the Scottish Enlightenment. And so I I looked at uh, the discovery of elements. So when did we go from understanding everything as being made out of earth, water, fire, and air to uh, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen? And then how was that discovery made? And what, what did it mean? So anyway, history of science is, is sort of a niche field, but, um, but I find it really interesting. And there are a couple of projects that you talk about on your website, which I'll be linking to in the show notes. Could you share a bit about your situating chemistry and enlightened chemistry projects? Sure. So um, enlightened chemistry is, a, is an older project for me, and it was a classroom project. And so what happened was that in my research, I was looking at how chemistry was taught in the 18th century. And I wanted to look at these instructors who were making big, important discoveries. So a guy named Joseph Black discovered carbon oxide, uh, what we now call carbon dioxide, as a gas. And he discovered all sorts of theories about latent heat and just uh, a lot of really important chemistry. And so I wanted to look at how he taught his students those theories as he discovered them. And so I had my students reading the actual lecture notes that students took in their classrooms Uh, in the 18th century as he was teaching these theories. And I wanted them to pull out from these lecture notes that ranged over about 30 years, how the lectures changed, how Joseph Black's teaching changed in line with his research. And what we ended up finding was that the lectures didn't change at all. He actually didn't integrate his research into his teaching 
at all, which I found <laughs> startling. And so the the project was really interesting. I had students transcribing this stuff and putting it online and then doing the analysis and writing, I think, high-level research papers. But the the results were sort of negative. We didn't confirm the hypothesis that we went in with. So it was an interesting outcome. So that was an in-class project. And then situating chemistry sort of extends that. And I still look at courses, but also the people that were doing chemistry in the 18th century, the places that they were doing that chemistry, the substances they were studying, texts and objects and everything else related to chemistry. And we've built out a big database at thesituatingchemistry.com. And I hope it'll be useful for researchers. And then I also hope it's useful for students as they're doing research. I hope people send their students to that site to both find resources and then also to enter new information about resources. I was just having a conversation with one of my students yesterday, and he was sharing his dislike for a class that he had taken some time ago where the professor didn't give them really enough instructions to do something. And I didn't, I didn't bother to bore him with my big long lecture about how actually it's important to challenge you so that you, cause that's actually when you learn more versus if you're spoon fed all, but I, I decided that probably when we just passed each other in the hallway, it's not the best time to give that lecture. But as you were talking, I'm curious cause they must have encountered a number of challenges as you were having them go through these projects, what, what were some of the common ones and, and how did you go about trying to help them address them or, or just let them struggle on their own? Yeah, so it was, it was interesting because I didn't know quite what they would come across. So it was experimental and, and, you know, sort of I anticipated that there would be failures along the way. So what happened was I gave the students photographed, digitized uh, scans of these lecture note sets and I made sure that they were high res and that they could blow them up uh, so that they would be easy to read. And then I gave each student just a page at first. And I said, we're going to read through these and sort of see how chemistry was being taught, what they're teaching, uh, all of these things. Um, and so I, I talked about, you know, uh, what types of terms they might encounter, uh, differences in English from the 18th century to now, all of these different concepts that, that I was worried about. And then I didn't anticipate what they came back with was uh, several of them couldn't read cursive. And so I hadn't even <laughs> thought about the fact that these notes were in cursive, which you know, to me was not important. Uh, but it was the stumbling block that prevented several students from really being able to to participate. And so then I had to go find other sets of notes for them. And so, yeah, it's just, it's uh, anytime you're doing experimental work, you can anticipate some of the problems, but not all of them. I thought paleography would be a challenge or chemical terms would be a challenge, but in our case, it was, it was cursive. Mm. And in that particular case, how did you decide to address that the fact that they couldn't read cursive? I gave them, luckily I did have some notes that weren't in cursive, and so I could just sort of trade and, and literally ask people to raise their hands if they could read cursive, mm. which is just not something I ever thought I would have to do with, with students. It never crossed my mind. But anyway, we were able to, to sort that out and get past it. And then the, the other nice thing was that we were anticipating, like I said, seeing change over time in these lecture notes. And because there was no change over time, the lecture notes almost ended up being verbatim over a 30-year window. And so lecture notes that were recorded in 1750, 1770, and 1780 all ended up being about the same, which meant that the students could compare their transcriptions with each other in the classroom to be able to figure out words that they couldn't identify or concepts that they couldn't identify. So little changed that they were basically comparing notes off of the same set. Did this experience, the fact that that, that was the findings, make you think at all about your own teaching and challenge you in any ways? Yeah, exactly. That was my main takeaway was just, um, you know, I guess laziness at the faculty level hasn't, hasn't been invented <laughs> recently. 
I don't think I've ever had two versions of the course that were the same. Uh, I've certainly never gone off lecture notes like that. And so to see it for 30 years was startling. But I, I have had faculty when I was an undergrad that, that might have done that, or at least you couldn't tell that they weren't doing that. Mm-hmm. And so, it, yeah, it did remind me that, uh, <laughs> that we should really avoid reading to our students. I, I think Black must have had lecture notes and must have basically stood in front of the class reading off of the same notes for 30 years. And so that really, it really did impact how I wanted to teach in my classroom. When today we're talking about open access resources, and of course, one of the big reasons why people will gravitate toward looking for those to use in their classes is around their aversion for textbooks. But that actually isn't the case of why you initially got interested in them. So can you talk a little bit about how you initially got interested and any thoughts that you want to share about textbooks in general? Yeah, so in history of science, it's a small enough field that there are no real textbooks. We don't have sort of the big classic Algebra one type textbook or even U.S. history type textbook. So generally you pick, you know, maybe a couple of core texts that you want the class to read, and then you supplement that with journal articles or with newspaper articles of interest or um, some sort of project of interest. And so it hadn't really occurred to me how heavily faculty and other departments sometimes rely on textbooks. And so there was no real you know, from my background, it didn't make sense to rely on a textbook and for somebody else to provide you content. That's that's up to the faculty to figure out what it is that they want to teach. Um, and so when I moved into the uh, uh, our Center for Teaching Excellence and I started seeing what was going on in the other departments, it surprised me the amount of what amount of control over a course that faculty cede to the textbook industry. And so I wanted to, you know, sort of push them back on that a little bit. I wanted to challenge them on that a little bit. And ask them, you know, what is it that you really want your students to get out of your course? It can't be reading, you know, a textbook. Um, that doesn't make much sense. And so, you know, are there ways that we can develop more meaningful resources, things that get at, you know, what gets you excited about chemistry or algebra or, or U.S. history uh, in the same way that I was able to choose texts that got me excited about, uh, you know, 18th century science or, or Newtonian science or whatever. And who is a person at your campus who really took that to heart and has made some changes in their own teaching because of those you pushing back in that way? Well, luckily, I, I came on board right as we were starting this big initiative out of our library to um, to pr- both provide money and sort of time for faculty to move towards open source textbooks. And so uh, I've been helping one faculty member in uh, the economics department. He teaches statistics and he just threw out the statistics book and wrote a, a new statistics book. And again, that one seems like somewhere where I can see you wanting to use a, uh, a textbook just because stats is, you know, is somewhat linear. You have to go through mathematical concepts that build on each other. But his main point was, was saving students money, uh, that no particular textbook was better uh, than the rest and that no book justified spending $300 on it. And so he was able to provide this book for free to his students and get at, you know, those concepts that he thought were most important and also the epistemology and pedagogy that he thought was most important to convey the concepts. So I was really excited about that one. And then just convincing, again, people in, in history where they do have textbooks to to avoid using those, to to think, you know, more deeply about what concepts they wanna they wanna teach. When I first came into higher ed, I remember being told that some of the accrediting bodies actually look down on people that don't use quote real textbooks. But as I think back, I'm sure so much has changed around that. What, what do you see the landscape as far as some of the accrediting bodies or, or even just a measure of quality of a course, how that has evolved as it relates to textbooks? 
Yeah, I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms. You know, I think we always have this word rigor, which I find to be fairly meaningless. I think the accreditation bodies do, you know, attach various levels of rigor, but I have no idea how they associate those with particular textbooks. Um, and you can look at cost and you can look at, you know, the name associated with it, but neither of those are all that meaningful. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. So I do think there's this concern that that open educational resources aren't rigorous or aren't uh, as valuable, but there's no reason that should be. Some people worry that maybe open educational resources aren't produced in the same way, that they're not vetted in the same way. There's no peer review on them, but that there's no reason that that needs to be true. An open educational textbook is probably peer reviewed in the same way that any other textbook is, depending on who's working on it. You know, it's really just a matter of cost and whether or not you're you're opening it up and making it accessible to others. I was listening to a podcast I enjoy very much called Very Bad Wizards. And one of their recent episodes, which I'll link to in the show notes in case anyone's interested in listening, they were talking about one of the guys, David Pizarro, is in the field of psychology, social psychology specifically. And of course, they've had a lot of controversy around the replicability of their research. And that's kind of blowing up in that particular field. And there was some, I'll get the details garbled on this, but there was a lot of controversy from some scholars around people who were criticizing some of the researchers on public places like Twitter and blogs and things like that, saying that this should be left, you know, within the the realm of peer-reviewed journals and not out there for everyone to see. But of course, their argument was that's that is a form of peer review. And if that's not, if your research can't stand up to, you know, that sort of critique, then perhaps you don't have thick enough skin, A and B, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, so I, I do think you're right that, that they are peer-reviewed, just not in the same way in which open access res- resources are. But certainly if they're out there for the world to see, the world is um, free to comment. Yeah, I mean, and and some open, some OER publishers still use traditional blind peer review or, or you know, the traditional models and then they just just open publish. But I do really like the idea, and, and a couple places are starting to use just open review. And so they throw up uh, the, the sort of mostly final draft of a source and allow comments in the margins of the, of the web site for anybody who's reading it to see. And again, most of the people reading it are going to be experts. They're going to be people who have interest in reading this thing. And so you get you know, a lot more eyes on it. I think you have a lot more room for progress and suggestion. And, and improvement. And so, I, you know, there's still a stigma against self-publishing, but I, I just think people conflate that with open educational resources. Talk a little bit about your evolution as it comes to making use of open access resources in your teaching. Yeah, so so part of it was, you know, avoiding textbooks, but the other part was I wanted students to be doing something. I wanted them to be, you know, not just writing a disposable term paper for me, but actually contributing something that would feed back into the knowledge community. So whether that was just something that would uh, be informative for their their roommate or their classmates or their you know the college community or you know living online, I wanted them to be writing something and seeing that they could be knowledgeable about something. They could be an authority. And so initially, I had students working on iBooks uh, in one of my early classes that I was teaching, and they could make beautiful multimedia iBooks rather than writing me you know a traditional ten page paper. And I liked the the products of that, but iBooks are locked into the, and they're most valuable on an iPad. And so if you don't have an iPad, you can't really view them. And so that seemed limiting. So after that, I switched over to Wikipedia, and I had my students editing uh, wiki sites. I think the best example was I had a student who 
uh, worked on the Sidereus Nuncius article, and this is one of Galileo's textbooks. This is his his most important book, published in 1632, where he's talking about planets as he sees them. I might have messed up the date. It might be 1616. Anyway, um, but what she did was she rewrote this Wikipedia article on Sidereus Nuncius, and instead of having me as her only reader for this this you know what could have been a term paper that she turned in at the end of the semester, she was getting about a thousand readers a month. And had writ- written, you know, the thing that shows up first on a Google search um, for this book. And so it's something I could point to of you can be an authority. You, your research is valuable. Nobody has written a decent paper on Sidereus Nuncius. And now one of my students has. And it's been read by probably 20,000 people over the last year and a half. Uh, so that was the next step was from iBooks to wiki articles. And then finally on to websites and just having them use the blogosphere uh, to record their thoughts and to to write more meaningfully than in term papers. And share a little bit more about how your students are blogging and, and how you introduce that in a class, the idea of doing it and some of the benefits that they can expect to get out of it. Yeah, so in my first class, we just used a course blog. Uh, and so this was a, a project called After Newton. Uh, and it was at WordPress, so afternewton.wordpress.com. And uh, the students there were looking at literature and science and how they interact. And so I'd have them writing about the science in Jurassic Park or in H.G. Wells or in uh, a movie that they had watched. And mostly I was just wanting them to share their thoughts and for us to have, you know, good conversation in class about what is an author trying to do with science? How are they trying to portray it? How are they trying to show the impact of science on society? And then for the students to be able to relate, you know, those perspectives to a broader world, to be able to analyze more meaningfully a movie like Jurassic Park. Um, and so it was nice to get the students writing and sharing their work in that space. But then I moved from teaching those types of courses into the Center for Teaching Excellence, and I moved into working on our Domain of One Own projects. Uh, here it's called Create, so create.ou.edu. And there we give each student their own domain space. And so once that happened, I started helping students to set up their own websites, their own domains, and uh, and being able to blog not only for a class, but for their family, for their their uh, study abroad, for their work as a student, you know, from freshman to senior, and uh, and be able to chart that progress with them. And so it went from my own personal experience teaching in the classroom with a course blog into this much broader ecosystem of of student blogs and student writing. When do students get their domain? So we try to reach out to the students as they come in to OU as freshmen, uh, sometimes even before. But as soon as they're in sort of the registration uh, for being a student at university, they uh, can turn on their domain. And so they just need to log into the system and then it is active and they can start going. Most often we talk to students sometime during their freshman year in one of their classes. And so we'll talk to them about how the teacher for that particular class intends for them to use their blog. And then we help them to set up their domain and the, the subdomain for that class um, and give them a sense of, of how others are using it and how they might use it. So hopefully we get to most students in their freshman year and then you know encourage them to keep using it however they see fit while they're in college. So many students will have subdomains or subdirectories for each of their courses and then their main domain will be you know about them. And we encourage them to keep that as a portfolio either for friends and family or for potential employers. 
So if they have a subdomain for a course, is that going to show up as something like a menu item or something navigatable from their main blog? Or are they, is that a way that they can kind of keep it a little bit more separate and, and really have power over the branding of that main site? Yeah, it's up to them. So they can, we encourage them to link it from the main site if if they find that useful. And so they might have on their main site a menu that says, you know, here are the, the three classes I'm in now or the, you know, 12 classes I've been in over the last couple of years. But if they don't want to do that, that's fine also. They As long as they give you know, the subdomain and URL to their instructor, the rest of it doesn't really matter. And so they can have a very streamlined, you know, if they wanted to use their main domain as a photography site and just have, you know, the beautiful images that they've shot uh, over the last six months or year, 10 years, that's fine. And then they can, you know, leave these subdomains for the particular classes that they're in. It's one of the challenges that I've ran into in teaching in a doctoral program. I teach just a single class and it's technology and leadership, and I like them to learn about blogging, and a lot of them have never done so before. And so it's helpful for me to have them blogging about the content in the class and the things that we're talking about. But then I know that I limit their sense of freedom and sometimes, unfortunately, their sense of excitement about the class and about blogging. And and if I were to give them more freedom, and I, and I kind of this last time I taught it, tried to change that around and say, it can you can make this tell your own story. And I made less of an emphasis on the course content, but it sounds like there's a, there's a, there's instead of an either, or there's a both and. Yeah. I think that's the great thing about domains as opposed to sites is that you can give them, you know, these separated spaces. I always use the analogy of a house and I say that you can have as many rooms in your house as you want to. And so you can have rooms for each of your courses and sort of the main lobby for, uh, for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I encourage them to set it up that way. But they don't have to. Again, if they just want to use the the main domain space for the one course that they're in at a time, that's fine too. And so we try to give them as much ownership and as much control uh, as we can uh, while still giving them some structure so they can understand what they're supposed to be doing. And then is there anything that the professors do to bring in the feeds from the various students into one place? Yeah. So the best thing for instructors to do is sometimes they'll just create a sort of link list so a blog role, mm-hmm. uh, either within our LMS or on their own website. But you can also, if you want to set up a course site, you can provide the students with the syllabus or you know whatever the content you want to give them, but then also have a blog role there that um, it uses something called FeedPress to pull in all of the uh, RSS feeds from all of the students. And so you get a centralized blog. Uh, and then when someone links uh, clicks on any of the links on that blog, it kicks you out to the student's actual website. And so it creates good discoverability for all of their blogs, but then also links back to the original uh, blog that the students control. I've heard about FeedPress before. I'm trying to see if I remember it correctly. Is that a WordPress plugin? Yeah. So most of these sites, I think that one might rely on the students using WordPress, but I'm not sure Mm. if it's agnostic. Uh, But it is a a WordPress plugin. About maybe 80% of the people who are using domains are using WordPress at OU, uh, and the rest are using Omeka or Drupal or Known or any of the other apps that uh, that work in a PHP environment. I know another example you wanted to share today has to do with your course, The History of Science. Can you talk a little bit about what you did in that class? Sure. So like I said, there aren't really good textbooks, and there's not even a really standardized curriculum for a History of Science survey. And so for this survey, I was working with uh, one of my colleagues, Kathleen Shepard, at the uh, Missouri University of Science and Technology. And her course is, she's supposed to teach students the history of science from Plato to NATO. So from whenever she wants to start in Greek times 
to now um, in a semester. And so that's that's literally an impossible task. You can't, you know, obviously you can't teach everything that's ever happened in science. You can't. And so there's a lot of leeway. <laughs> well, I could because I don't know a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, that, we discovered gravity and, and that was it. Um, but uh, so there's a lot of leeway as to how you want to structure this thing. And so what we did was instead of us telling the student, okay, we're going to focus on physics and we're just going to talk about, you know, Aristotle's idea for why things fall compared to Newton, compared to Einstein, and then now, I mean, that's one possible path. Or we could talk about, you know, understandings of biology, um, again, from Aristotle to to Darwin and to Stephen Gould and now. Um, but instead we said, okay, we'll, we'll put all of this content into a tool called 3D Game Lab, a website that you can check out. It's called 3dgamelab.com. And we'll flesh out all of these different paths that a professor theoretically could teach. And then we'll just leave it up to the students as to which ones they want to take. And so most of the students in that course were engineers or physical scientists. And so we assumed that they would want to look more at physics or history of technology, something like that. But we also provided um, pathways for history of medicine, history of biology, history of the physical sciences, history of mathematics. And then as we were fleshing all of this out, we realized that we, we had actually developed a grid. So we had each of these little disciplinary pathways, but then we also had chronological pathways that cut across. So if someone wanted to, they could just look at all of the sciences in the medieval period or all of the sciences in the 19th century. And so that was another possible sort of pathway that students could take. And so we just told students, you need to take two or three of these pathways over the course of the semester. Uh, and we gave them some guidelines on how to sort of accumulate points as they moved through the system, just to show that they had done sort of an equivalent amount of thinking and work. And as long as they they put in good effort, that was the course. That was their choice as to what they wanted to do. How do you articulate in the learning outcomes for the class what the goals are? Sometimes people get nervous when you say, wait, but how would I know they got the topics or the content, what is your your alternate means of assessing this course? So for us, the the individual sort of dates and, and content don't matter. It, it it doesn't particularly matter to me that students know when Sidereus Nuncius was published. As I said earlier, I'm fuzzy with the dates sometimes. <laughs> but the, the main thing is that we there are a couple of themes we really want to touch on in almost all of our classes. And so the interplay between science and society and culture, how how they mutually you know, shape each other. So one of the big elements is science and religion. And almost all of our courses are going to touch on what is the interaction between science and religion. Um, a lot of our courses will touch on science and politics or science and, and culture, you know, the arts. Or we'll talk about, you know, uh, imperialism and science. And so in each of the different pathway, pathways we built, we tried to make sure that each pathway touched on the same basic themes. And so whatever pathways the students chose, they were going to be exposed to those themes and the the activities we had them doing, we're going to have to wrestle with those themes. And so, you know, we gave them a, an overview as to what these themes are and why they're important and told them they weren't going to be able to avoid those themes no matter what, you know, they chose. And so it was up to them how they wanted to go through it. That's such a good mental exercise to go through. I, I find myself going through it probably every semester thinking whenever I start to have the thought of, gosh, I'm not covering enough for the, it, when it becomes an issue of topics being covered, I can almost always rest assured I'm on the wrong path. Yeah. Well, and that's, like I said, that's the huge challenge for us just because there's, there's a lot to do, but yeah, really trying to boil it down to how do I want my student to be able to, what do I want them to take away from this class? How do I want them mm -hmm. to be able to better understand their world? 
when they leave or, or be able to ask you know better questions when they leave and so we focused on what are those questions uh, and made sure that they were omnipresent. This is the time in the show in which we each get to give some recommendations. And I got to watch some videos from Ken Bauer's class. It's happening. Their whole school shuts down. And so his class is a concentrated one. And he's got some phenomenal guests that have been coming in. And the week we're recording this, of course, this is going to actually air much later. So no one's going to be able to catch it. Actually, though, the the recordings will still be there. So I'll put a, a link to his classes schedule page where you can go back and watch some of these tremendous speakers he had. And he posted a video that I'm going to share just a little tiny clip of. This is David White of the University of Oxford. And he's explaining some terms that he uses that contrast with what a lot of people use to describe, oh gosh, you know, there, there are these young people today who just get technology so easily. And so they are the digital natives. And then those of us who grew up in a different generation and didn't, you know, come out of being born with an iPad in our hand, <laughs> were the digital, uh, the digital immigrants. And, and there's a lot of people who have started to push back on that particular way of describing it. I'm going to play just a little bit of the start of this video. It's called Visitors and Residents. And I'll also be posting a link in the show notes so people can go and watch it. It's not too long. It's a seven-minute one. It's well worth the watch. They're good with using digital technology, aren't they? It's easy for them because they grew up with it. Going online, using the web, it comes naturally to them. They learn how to use technology the same way they learn their own language, by being immersed in it from a very early age. Is this metaphor of language which underlies the digital natives and immigrants idea put forward by Mark Prensky at around about the turn of the century? So he goes on and describes his terms of visitors and residents, which leave us with much more possibility in our own becoming more digitally literate and also in helping our students do the same. It's an excellent watch. I highly recommend it. And it's a part of a much longer series, which I haven't watched yet, but is on my watch list now. And John, what do you want to recommend for us today? So I've been reading a book called The State of Play, edited by Daniel Goldberg and Linus Larson. And it's a compilation of of journalistic articles and sort of think pieces about serious play, about how games can be used to address issues of racial inclusion, uh, gender diversity, just all sorts of social issues. And so it, it shows that games are serious and that games have an impact and that who's building those games has impact. So there's a particularly good chapter by uh, Anna Anthropy, who develops a lot of open source games using an engine called Twine, which I'm currently working in. And so anyway, I think this book is is a really good insight into um, how to think about games and how to think about the game industry. And you've got another one too, right? Oh yeah, the the other one is, uh, is the other thing that I'm reading right now, which is The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, which is my daughter's favorite comic book. So in the Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, Squirrel Girl is is actually an Avenger, and so she works with uh, Iron Man and Thor and those types. But she almost always just outthinks her opponents, and it's it's really adorable. Uh, at one point, she goes up against Galactus, who's the World Eater, and she convinces Galactus that instead of eating Earth, he should eat this planet made out of acorns because acorns are delicious. And so they go off and have a picnic together, and that's how she saves the day. Um, so anyway, 
that's uh, that's my other recommendation. Oh, both of these things. I'm. I told you already. The state of play sounds so good, and the unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Just the title alone says I should definitely pick that up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wonderful for daughters, and I think for everybody. Uh, and it's it's great for you know I think four to eight year olds. But I think I might be enjoying it more than my daughter. So. As we close today, could you give just one final piece of advice to anyone listening who isn't currently doing anything in open access resources? What would be your advice to them as far as getting started? Well, the main thing is I always want people to, to actually, you know, we're producing knowledge theoretically as researchers. And so I want people to read what I'm producing and locking it away behind $30 articles and $120 books just seems really counterintuitive. Our students are also producing knowledge. And they have so much latent ability. And when we just have them turn in papers that we're going to mark up in red pen and file away in a cabinet, that's, again, wasting that capacity for, for sharing knowledge and for producing knowledge. So anyway, just think about how you can take the time both for yourself and for your students to, to share what you're doing. Another piece of advice that I would have for people is to go out and get some inspiration. And a great place to do that are any of the open access resources repositories. The one that I am probably most familiar with is Merlot2. That stands for Multimedia Educational Resource for Learning and Online Teaching. And how this works is you can go in there and either search or browse around your discipline and find all kinds of whether it's case studies or videos or online courses, I mean, all kinds of information that you could make use of in your courses. Keegan Longwheeler and I have been working on open games lately. And so uh, you can find lots of links for digital assets, for audio, video, images, and uh, game engines themselves on our websites for Experience Play, which is xp.keegansLW.com, or on uh, our, our bigger site, Goblin. Uh, which I think is goblin.keeganslw.com. And so we've got lots of resources for open gaming. John, I just want to thank you so much for taking time today to being on the show. I've admired your work for so long and both on Twitter and also your blog and just such an honor to get to talk to you and learn more about a topic that has actually never been devoted an entire episode to open access resources. So thanks for bringing this into the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Thanks to John Stewart for being a guest on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have yet to give a rating or review to the show, it doesn't take but a minute and really helps to expand the community and let other people discover the show. You can do that by going to whatever service it is you use to listen to the show and just giving it either a number of stars or even writing some feedback about your experience listening to the show. I hope you'll do that so we can continue to grow the Teaching in Higher Ed community. And as always, if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly email, that'll get all these great links that John shared today right in your inbox without you having to remember to go look at the show notes. And you'll also get each week an article in that same email with me sharing about teaching or productivity. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.